pardon my voice this morning. I don't know what's going on. I'm struggling with <clears throat> summer, I guess. Maybe it's just too hot. Couldn't be that, could it? But as we consider, continue our summer stories, we're going to come to one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And it's the story of the deliverance of God's people across the Red Sea. Now, if you remember the story leading up to this, God's people have been living in Egypt for about 400 years. You probably remember they moved there uh, in the days of Joseph because there was a worldwide famine and Joseph had been divinely led by God to be in Egypt to prepare the world to have food for those uh, seven years of famine. Uh, And they all moved down there uh, and they moved to a place uh, across the river from where most of the Egyptians lived, the land of Goshen, and they became comfortable there. They became living at ease and they became actually fairly well off in that process. And they went from being a nation of 70, well, really not a nation, a, a tribe of 70 people to a nation of about 2 million people over 400 years. And they went from being relatively insignificant to being a possible threat to the security of the land. When you think you've got a, two million folks across the river, that could be a problem uh, if they rose up. And apparently from historical sources, there was a, a change in the pharaohs during that time. Uh, there was possibly an invasion from Cush uh, from the south, and there was a changeover. And so what had been a very cushy, cush, no pun intended, cushy area, cushy place, easy place to be, had become very difficult, and the people of God had become basically slaves. There's really no way to cut that other than it was what they were. And you're probably familiar with Moses' story. He, he was put in a basket out on the river to save his life. He spent 40 years living in the Pharaoh's daughter's household. Then he uh, killed a man. He was a murderer. Uh, no way to cut that any better than that. He was a murderer, and he fled, ended up living in the wilderness, met a woman, got married, Forty years go by, and God shows up and says, Hey, you. And he was in the form of a burning bush. That's a cool story. We didn't go into that one today. But he is commanded to go to Egypt. Y'all know what happens then. He goes down and tells Pharaoh, Let my people go. And after a series of ten plagues, finally Pharaoh says, Get out. Please just get out. And that's where we enter the story in Exodus chapter 14. So look at verses 1 through 9 with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, yeah, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in, uh, in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants has changed toward the people. And they said, What have we done? What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots in Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pi Haaroth in front of Baal Zephon. Don't you just love it when they put those fun words to say in the Bible? I'll give you the seminary tip on how to read those. You say them quickly and confidently, and nobody knows if you said it right or wrong, okay? 
They didn't really teach us that in seminary, but anyway. The first thing I want you to see is this, is God has done something in their lives. And something that is really strange when you stop and look at it. We tend to think of God as doing great and mighty things, of doing great and mighty deliverance by taking us into the best places, right? Sometimes God does something different. Here's what God did. He delivered them to a dead end. <laughs> you ever find yourself at a dead end? Most of the time it's just today for me, but it, it's dead ends. At this point, the people of God have kind of been wandering and meandering in the desert. They're headed toward the promised land, but they're not making a beeline there. But They're making more of a leisurely approach. And then God steps in and says, hey, I want you to go to a particular place. And y'all look at those passages just like I do and go, where is that? Because we don't know the geography of the area. We don't know the names of the towns. We don't know any of that stuff. So we have to rely on people way smarter than me which is most folks, and figure out where they're talking about. What they're talking about is a place that was essentially on the eastern shore of the Red Sea, the, the left leg of it, if you look at a map and you're interested in that. And what God was doing was something that you kind of go, that surely wasn't God, except the passage says, the Lord said to Moses, tell him to go there. So God is doing this. He says, I want you to go to a dead end. I remember living in New Orleans years ago. And I had a job calling on, on some offices in the city. And I don't know if you've ever driven in the city of New Orleans, but there are lots of weird traffic patterns, weird endings, places where you get to and you can't go any further. They weren't necessarily dead ends, but, but for as far as getting somewhere, it was a dead end. You couldn't get there. God has sent them to this dead end. And you're going, what do you mean by that? They are in a place militarily that is not easily defended if you think about the seashore, is that high ground or low ground? <laughs> it's always low. Why? Because it's at sea level. So they're at the low ground. There's also not a place in this area for easy escape. If you're being attacked, they're trapped. They're at a dead end. And God has put them there. He says, I'm putting you in that place on purpose. Furthermore, God says in this passage, he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Now, I don't know how you wrestle with that one theologically, but you kind of think, wow, God hardened the guy's heart. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, y'all with me? You think, well, God hardened? Yeah, he, he did, okay? I don't have to understand it. But in his sovereignty, what God is doing is setting up a situation where God is going to work and God is going to move and God is going to get the glory and the people of God are going to go, oh, that's how he works. They're starting to figure it out. They would understand that he is the God most high. And so when word came to Pharaoh that the army, uh, that the people of God had ended up out there at the seashore, kind of stuck in this spot, and his heart has been hardened, the Pharaoh says, you know what? We made a mistake. <laughs> it was interesting how he made the mistake, but it became a we made the mistake. And says, we've made a mistake. We've let these people go. He, they're gone. And we've got to go get them back. We've lost this free labor source. We've lost this group of people. We've got to go get them. And so what happened is God's people, according to God's perfect will, according to God's perfect plan, are exactly where they're supposed to be. And yet, it's a dead end. Let that kind of sit in your personal understanding of God and how he works in our lives. Because sometimes we think there's no way God can take me to the end of the rope and be at work. But he is. God hardens the heart, and something's going to have to get. Come down to verse 10. So when Pharaoh drew near, the people lifted of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching off after them. And, and I love the way sometimes Scripture seems to understate the obvious. And they feared greatly. You think? Here comes an army. 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Right place to cry out to, correct? You cry out to the Lord in the middle of the dead end. They said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said in Egypt? Boy, they sound like us sometimes, don't they? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So with God's people encamped at the seashore, at the dead end, they're at the low ground, no place to go. Here comes the army of Egypt with 600 at least chariots on their tail. And you're probably thinking, well, you can step out of the way of a chariot. Yeah, not really. Those were like tanks in the ancient world. This was not like a small group. And to say they were alarmed would be to say it mildly. They were terrified. Just like you and I would have been in that moment. We would have looked at it and said, what are we going to do? Remember, these people have been living as bond servants for a long season. They weren't the whole 400 years, but a long time they have been bond servants. They, they had not started out that way, but here they are subjected to the land. They are not fighters. They're workers. They don't have lots of leaders. There's a lot of followers. And they are inexperienced in how to stand up in these moments. They don't know what to do, so they cry out to the Lord. And yet, they're human, just like us. Lord, we got problems. I can't believe, Moses, you took us to this mess. They start blaming Moses. They complain to him. I guess you brought us here to die. I'm sure that was Moses' plan, don't you? He goes, if I get them to follow me, I'll take them to the desert, and they can all die together. It's amazing how we do that, isn't it? We, we make conclusions that are, if you stop and think of the logic, doesn't make a lot of sense. But here it is. And they start going, the, oh, woe is me. Oh, woe is me. Poor, pitiful me. Where are you going to die? You, there weren't enough graves in Egypt, so you brought us out here to get rid of Oh, no. What are we going to do? Oh, my goodness. I do that. You may not, but I do that sometimes. I start worrying. Man, my worry is my biggest enemy. I'm my own biggest enemy sometimes. My mind starts running. A thousand, just ask my wife. So I was running a thousand miles about a thousand things that are never going to happen, but I think about what's going to happen. That's what they're doing. They're despairing in the situation. And then they pull the, what I call the, I told you so card. Moses, we told you we didn't want to leave. We told you we love being slaves. We told you we like working with, making bricks with no straw. We told you we like not having freedom. We told you that was great. What? They didn't say that, did they? Did they really say that? Maybe, but probably not. And in this moment, they're in deep despair going, we're done. We're done for. The Egyptian army will decimate us. We will all die in the desert. We have no hope. What are we going to do? This God that seems to have delivered us seems to have delivered us to destruction. What are we going to do? Look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will, get this, never see again. Wow. That's pretty definitive, wouldn't you say? The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Oops. They haven't been yet, have they? 
The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, that they will show they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, then the angel of God was who was going, get this, before them, the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, and coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. So into despair, Moses steps up and says, what are y'all doing? What are you thinking? Look at the Lord. Look to God. Look to Him. He's the one. He's the one that's going to determine our future. He's the one that's going to lead our future. He's the one that's going to carry us through this. He is the one who discloses to them, this is what God has for us. He makes a promise that God shares with them. Guess what? You won't ever see these folks again. Do they understand what that meant at this point? No. Did it really matter? No, because they're not going to see them ever again. God is at work in their life. God is going to fight for them. And all they had to do was stand still. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? You think, well, but he's telling them to do nothing? Oh, no, he's not telling them to do nothing. He's telling them to wait on the Lord. You see that? He's saying, wait for God to move in this moment. Get ready. God's about to move. You need to be expecting Him to be moving. You need to be looking for Him to be moving. But you need to stand right here until God moves. Because God's call is crystal clear for them. God is getting them ready to move on. God is going to fight for them. Now Moses would have to take a step of faith and raise a staff in obedience to God. But they're going to stand here. And that's when this pillar of cloud moves from in front of them at the water's edge apparently to behind them. God puts a protection between them and the Egyptian army and says, no more. And he provides light for them to be able to see, but darkness for the army of Egypt. Did you catch that? And the angel of the Lord moves from in front to behind them. He's going to protect them. And a battle is about to happen. And God's plans are going to be accomplished. His purposes are going to be established. And God has not delivered them from bondage to destroy them, but to deliver them. And God would not forsake them because he has a future for them. So let's look at the most controversial part of the story. Then... Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made sea dry land. You've probably seen the movie. Miraculously, it happened as soon as he raised his hand. That's so inaccurate. It took more than that. It took a little bit of time. Not a lot of time, but a little more time. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea. Any of you struggling with this? Logically, mentally, human standpoint? Yeah, some of us do, don't we? Can this really happen? 
went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to their to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. horsemen. And, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. From the best I could do from my study is that means that their wheels started falling off the chariots. And if you're going to drag a chariot on grind drowned with nothing to roll on, it becomes very difficult to move, is the best I could understand from the Hebrew there. And so they drove heavily, is what it says. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. When the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel dropped on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord and in Moses. So all that was left to do at this point was for Moses to stretch out his hand in obedience. And what happened is this, a night of wind came from the Lord. You're going, hmm, what does that mean, a night of wind? It means a night of wind. And we take it on faith that God knew what he was doing, okay? We accept that. But I got to tell you, y'all know I love archaeology and history and all of that cool stuff. I won't go too deep here, but hang on. From my studies, what I've discovered is this. There's apparently, according to archaeological, archaeological evidence, there is a geographic, geologic formation that crosses that body of water below the water, but it's not as deep as the rest, like a ridge that runs across there. And apparently, from what they can tell, and especially when you hear the second part of their evidence, is that that was where the people crossed. So he didn't have to dry the whole sea up just enough so that they weren't underwater any longer. And we know they were underwater because what happens with the army of Egypt? They get drowned. You don't get drowned in two feet of water easily anyway. But on top of that, they've also discovered in this same ridge, get this, coral in the shape of wagon wheels. And you're going, huh? Laying under the water, because wood would get under the water and coral would begin to grow on it and the wood would go away, but the coral would remain. And they, they found those. Other. So apparently, and I don't put my faith in the evidence, I put my faith in the Lord to understand, but it is kind of cool to see that that's possible. And so once the land was dry, the people of God cross this ridge that was underwater originally. And on their heels, behind the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud, you know, the chariots of Egypt coming after them. But they can't get to them. Why? Because God is protecting them from the attack. You see? 
As God's people exit the water, Moses is told to lift his hand again. But did you notice that the Egyptians, all of a sudden, in the middle of the water, discover, in the middle of the crossing, discover, we better get out of here. They're already in the process of turning away, but they don't make it. See, during the last watch of the night, God caused those chariots, I think, to have mechanical problems, probably the wheels coming off. So the Egyptians make a decision. They head back. But at daybreak, with all of God's people safely across the body of water, Moses stretches out his hand again in obedience to God, and the water's held back by the winds, by the hand of God, swiftly returned to their original location. And between the weight of the chariots, the weight of their army, they had no chance. You think, would God do that? God did that. Do I fully understand the why? I don't have to. But this this army of Egypt who's been pursuing the people of God are wiped away. And so with a mighty deliverance, the people of God finally go, "Uh uh-oh, God is God. And we trust in Him. And we fear the Lord. And we're going to trust Moses and He knows what He's doing. And here they are on the other side of the water, the enemy to reduce, and they're headed in the right direction. So what do we do with a story like this? Some, have, some like to debate the water. I'm not worried about the water. Some want to debate the power of God. Yeah, I got no fight in that, in that one, okay? But I think there's three thoughts we can get here. And the first one is this. Did you know that I believe God uses dead ends for his glory? He uses dead ends for his glory. You go, what do you mean? I suspect more often than we realize, God will lead his people to a dead end on purpose. You're thinking, what? He takes us to the dead end on purpose. You're going, that doesn't seem to make sense to my mind. Well, that's because our minds are not like God's mind. Our thoughts are not like his thoughts. Our ways are like his ways. So we've got to be careful about that when we say, well, I don't agree. I wonder how many times in the pages of Scripture we see the people of God end up exactly what we'd call a dead end of some sort. I started making a list. I won't read the whole list, but here's the short list. You know, David found himself at a dead end. It was called a lion's den. Wow. Hello. That's called literally a dead end if it ends wrong. How about this one? Jeremiah, the prophet, found himself at the bottom of a well. He had to be rescued out of that well. How about this one? Elijah found himself hiding in a cave because the old mean woman up north was after him, okay? Wanted to kill him. He was hiding. How about David? You remember David? King David ended up in a cave too, hiding from King Saul because he wanted to Kill him. We talk about dead ends. Those are dead ends, okay? And here we find the people of God recently delivered from Egypt with the backs, with their backs to an uncrossable body of water with an army breathing down their necks and they are at a dead end. And God uses it for his glory. See, we would be remiss to always assume that a dead end is the result of wrongdoing on our part. Sometimes a dead end is where God wants us to be so that he can show his glory. You go, but I thought everything's supposed to be peachy, easy, and wonderful when I follow Jesus. I'm, the longer I follow Jesus, the more I'm convinced that it's not that it's easy, but that I have the strength to go through what he has and to carry me through whatever trial happens for whatever reason it happens. We make a mistake when we assume that dead ends are because we've done something wrong. And we may react poorly to them. 
and the people, like the people of Moses did, but they were exactly where God, let, let this sink in. God had led them to where they were. God had said, go to that spot. And you're going, but didn't he know I was a dead end? Doesn't he know there's no way out? Yeah, he did. He said, I have a way out. Don't worry. I'll just make a way when there seems to be no way. By following faithfully what God had for them, it seemed like a mistake. But God was up to something. I've got to tell you, my friends, that's true in our lives as well. Listen to what Colossians 1.13 says. God has delivered us. He's speaking to Christians here. He says, God has delivered us from the domain of death, the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Do you realize that when you came to know Christ, you were at what? A dead end. There was no hope. There was no future. There was no eternity worth having. But God said, I will deliver you from that. He delivers us from those and puts us on his straight and narrow. He takes us from the darkest spot to the brightest moments. Number two, kind of related, but not exactly the same. God's plans are always good. Always good. Always. See, when God builds the house, it's solid. It's sure. When God provides the way forward, it's always good. Now, from a military standpoint, the people of God in this story had the low ground. They had no pathway of retreat if necessary. That's not a good place to be militarily. You don't go, I think I'll put us down where the enemy can be shooting down on us and attacking us from the high ground, and we got nowhere to go. That sounds like a really good military move. But God said, this is where I want you. God was setting up a situation where the impossible became possible. Did you see that? He was moving among his people not just to set them free from bondage, but to deliver them to the promised land, to get them to where they needed to be, and to begin to change their mindset along the way so they could be ready for it. See, where we so often find ourselves is we make our plans, we devise our schemes, we make all kinds of assumptions, but we forgot one thing. We didn't rely on God. We frank our plans, but we don't check with God. The writer of Proverbs spoke to this when he said, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I think a better course of action for us is to get close to God and let him lead us each step of the way and, and follow his plans for our lives. And then one last thought. I want you to see this. Our God desires salvation for us. If you want to update the bulletin to make it a little more personal, mark out the word us and say me. He desires salvation for me. You're going, oh, God doesn't, doesn't love me. Yeah, he does. God doesn't care about me. Yeah, he does. God doesn't want to save me. Yeah, he does. I'm not sure I need to be saved. Yeah, you do. I suspect the Egyptians could have been saved as well that day. You realize that? You go, what? Yeah, God loves Egyptians just like he does the people of God. God loves pagans like he likes Christians. In fact, some days I wonder if he doesn't love... No, he doesn't love them more. He just loves them this much, okay? I suspect the Egyptians could have found salvation. Instead, they blindly followed their own path, their own plan, their own direction, and they went to destruction and never could have seen it coming. But I'm here to give you good news today. God wants all people to be saved and delivered from the darkest, most difficult dead end. Hear the words of Paul to his protege, Timothy, in chapter 2 of the first letter to Timothy. 
This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires some people to be saved. Aren't you glad that's not what it says? Y'all see that? It's on the screen. I even underlined it for you. Who desires what? All people. Now, does that mean all people will be saved? It doesn't say that, but what it says is he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the, of the truth. I'm here to tell you today, my friend, if you've never met Christ personally, he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to be saved. He stands at the door, as Revelation 3.20 says, stands at the door and knocks, wanting to enter your life. But you have to open the door for him. He won't force you to follow him, but he will come to your life when you let him. And then you get to make the decision to say, I'm going to follow God, step by step by step. Maybe you're here today and you need to make a decision to let God into your life for the very first time. That's the first step. For others, maybe it's another decision of some kind. Our prayer for you today is that you would let God move into your life as he leads you. Father, we pray right now for those this morning who, who are hearing And, Father, maybe you're speaking to them. And we pray that, God, you would guide them. But, Father, we would never presume that you have to work. But, God, we do trust you to work in our lives. We pray, God, that as we spend just a few moments singing, maybe responding, that your spirit would guide us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.